Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 29 for September 14, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. The wars of the last 30 to 40 years were quite simple. This is my own personal biography, and I have to admit it. You know, I'm very proud, for example, for my role in defensive uh, shield operation, 2002. I fought in every major Palestinian city except Jericho. Very proud. But at the same time, I have to admit, it was against very, very poor enemy. The enemy is not so poor anymore. On September 7, distinguished Israeli General Yair Golan, who recently completed service as the IDF's Deputy Chief of Staff, delivered the Washington Institute's 2017 Zev Shif Memorial Lecture. General Golan's remarks focused on three themes, the role of vision and founding values in Israeli society, the overall contours of Israeli national security policy, and military defense as a component of that policy. In assessing the current military situation, the general emphasized the threat posed by Iran, a sophisticated adversary that seeks, quote, to become the most dominant power in the Middle East. We'll hear General Golan's full remarks, as well as the lively Q&A session that followed after this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. When I finished my last assignment as the Deputy Chief of Staff, I was asked by the Minister of Defense to write Israel defense policy. And that's the reason I'm here, to have enough time to write. And I want to share with you some of the ideas that I have concerning this big issue. It's impossible to deal with Israeli defense policy without mentioning two other issues. The first one is about the vision and the fundamental values of Israel. Because everything, including the defense policy, should serve it. And the second thing, keep in mind that in Israel, and I believe the same is true for here in America, that defense policy is just part of the national security policy, which is much a wider issue. So this is the deal. I'm going to say a few words about vision and founding values. I'm going to say a few words about national security policy and the main chunk of this lecture is about defense policy which is really, truly represents more the military aspect of national security. All right? Fair enough? All right. Uh, the main source for the vision of Israel is the Declaration of Independence. And in fact, we have four main five main imperatives in this declaration. You know, we have no constitution in Israel. So I rely on, 
on the most fundamental uh, document that really encompasses the Israeli thinking. Uh, first, Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. And I think that today we have much to discuss concerning that. Uh, secondly, Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. The term democratic doesn't appear there, but it's written uh, free, just, and equal state. This is the terms written in the declaration. Uh, the third issue is about preserving freedom of religion and uh, accessibility of all holy sites in Israel. Uh, up to now, we can manage, we can control all three main imperatives. And the other two, well, the fourth one is about um, acceptable member in the region and contributing to the welfare of the region and its prosperity. Uh, well, that's quite complicated because we cannot do it alone. And the fifth one is about having or being a uh, welcomed member in the international community. But these five imperatives are not enough. David Ben-Gurion used to say that there are two things sh that should be added. The first one is that Israel should, should keep its intellectual and moral superiority. And as a supplement for that, Israel should be or lagoim v'chevrat mofet, light for the Gentiles, an exemplary society. That's very hard, very tough. But that was in the mind of David Ben-Gurion. Quite recently, our current president, President Rivlin, uh, added another issue. And this is the idea of the four tribes. Um, President Rivlin thinks that talking today in Israel about Israel as a melting pot for all Jews, for all the people, all the citizens of Israel, well, that's impossible. It's irre irrelevant in a way anymore. So President Rivlin acknowledged that we have four main tribes, the secular tribe, the national religious tribe, the ultra-Orthodox tribe, and the Arab tribe. And the challenge here is, although we have differences, we should live together, we should cooperate together, we should share the same values, and we should work together in order to enhance these values. And this is a great challenge. And it's really fitted a vision. So this is about the vision. Now let's move to the national security policy. Of course, the first who wrote about it is David Ben-Gurion. 
the founding father. And he mentioned four main things. First of all, and I put it in my words, it's not his words. First of all, social cohesiveness. And it's absolutely clear why it's important. The second issue, growing and honest economy. The third issue is strategic ally and reasonable foreign affairs. And the fourth one is having strong military. Quite simple. But these four ingredients, these four pillars, always appear after two main things. The first was Aliyah, observing Jews from all over the world. And the second thing was Ityashvut, settling the country. And keep in mind that from 48 to 56, more than 400 settlements were established all over Israel, mainly along the borders. Keep in mind that Israel was a very poor country during that time. It's a kind of a miracle. But these two imperatives are not relevant anymore. Because in 1948, about 15% of the Jewish people lived in Israel. Now we have almost 50%. And of course, settling the country could not be, you know, part of national security today. So what we have instead, what we have instead, also two important imperatives. The first one is about governance, the ability of the official entities of the Israeli government to rule. And I would say that in modern life, you cannot rule just from up, down. You need to work with the citizens, and you need to create some sort of cooperation and mutual relationship in order to get the best out of this relationship. I think the American example for that is very impressive. And the second one, I call it building the people and building the country. Building the people because all over the history of Israel, our main advantage was the human advantage. Not natural resources, not wealth, money. It always was around the quality of the people. And this is something we should keep. And building the country, because keep in mind that Israel is one of the most densest populated places on earth. Yes, I know that in the list, we are in number 35. But if you take out Monaco, Andorra, uh, San Marino, and you know other minor states, we are in number 13. And if you keep in mind that two-thirds of Israel is the Negev, the southern part, the desert part of Israel, 
then you get that most of the population is north of Be'er Sheva. And today, in the Holy Land, between the sea and the river, there are about 6.5 million Jews. And, you know, and you can discuss it, between 5.5 to 6 million Arabs. So it's not just very populated, it's also very complicated. And we need to build the country together. No other way, no matter what are the boundaries or the borders between Israel and Palestine, between the Palestine communities and the Jewish communities. So this is about national security policy. Now, let's move to the defense policy. This is more the military uh, defensive aspect of national security. Um, I divide it to four different sections. The first one is about the operational policy or the operational perception of Israel. It defines the relationship, sometimes the brutal relationship we have with our enemies. What can you do with your enemies and what are the outcomes, the possible outcomes of this relationship, violent relationship? The second part is about readiness of the IDF. It's so important, it's so crucial to the existence of Israel, you cannot ignore it. The third part is about building the power. How you build the strict military power of Israel. And the fourth part is about leadership and about um, the defense apparatus. Uh, let's start with the most important part, which is the operational perception. Uh, looking at that, it's a tough issue. First, I tried to define what kind of a relationship could we have with enemies, not with friends, only with enemies. First, we need to know about them, what their plans, what their culture, how much they have, 14 digits of targets, things like that. All levels of intelligence. So this is one way of relationship. The second issue is defending against them. Yes, protecting ourselves because they have bad intentions toward us and they prepare themselves to operate against us. That's the meaning of being enemies. So we have to defend. The third one is about prevention and influence. It's a kind of soft uses of power. And the fourth one is, yes, ladies and gentlemen, 
fighting them. This cover, in my mind, all possibilities of hostile relationship with your enemies. What are the outcomes of that? We have three. The most desirable one is deterrence. Nothing is better than to deter your enemy because you don't need much power. It costs less. And because it costs less, you can do with your money and with your people much better things, like building the country. But, as usual in violent relationship, here and there, deterrence collapsed. So what next? And there we have, we have, have something happy to say, to, to tell you. Once Israel has no other choice but to defeat its enemies. Now, we don't, we, we, we don't have to defeat them. We also, we also can, you know, take the power step by step, slowly, slowly. We call it attrition. Attrition. And it is a possibility for decision makers today in Israel. I understood it at the eve of Castled operation. Then the Minister of Defense, El Barak, called us, generals of the IDF, to explain what our plans. And we show him. You know, we are going to penetrate the Gaza Strip from here and from there, and we are going to conquer the Hamas and do all kinds of bad things to the Hamas. And I also saw his face coming gray. And after, you know, 10 minutes, he starts shouting, No, what are you doing? I have no intention to invest so much, and I have no expectation to get much. This is only the Hamas. All I want is a very limited operation. And guess what? Yes, he is right. It is a possibility. And we cannot anymore come to our political superiors and telling them that there is only one opportunity to achieve a complete defeat of our enemies, and that's it. It's a matter of how much you want to invest and what are your expectations. And there is a third element, how long it's going to take. It's about time, investments, and gains. And Israeli decision makers today should think in these terms. So deterrence and attrition, and of course, the third classic outcome is to defeat your enemy. And sometimes there is no other options. If I look today at the threat imposed by the Iranian crescent, Hezbollah, Shiite militias in Syria, Hezbollah in Syria, and Iran, and maybe the Houthis in Yemen, 
in case of a war, in case of they would you know, use all their capabilities against Israeli population, the IDF wouldn't have any other choice but to defeat, uh, to defeat the Hezbollah and other Shiite elements or anyone who fight against us. It's all depend upon the level of threat imposed on Israeli infrastructure, crucial infrastructure, and Israeli population centers. In this case, there is no other choice. So this is the first and most important part of the defense policy. I would like to say a few words about the other three. We are absolutely determined not to harm anymore the IDF readiness. Not anymore. The lesson out of the Second Lebanon War, the lesson, in a way, out of the last operation in Gaza, the operation of 2014, the lesson is that we should not compromise the readiness of the military. And the main problem is, and I believe the same is true here in the States, are the land forces. Because when you deal with land forces, it's so complicated. Why it's so com complicated? Because future battlefield going to be more complicated than the one we experienced in the last 30 years. No, it won't be like the Second World War. It will be easier. But it won't be like our last experiences in Lebanon and the Gaza Strip. It will be more lethal. It will be always in urban terrain. It will be with subterrain. It will be with vast uses of UAVs and cyber. So it's complicated. And while fighting in urban terrain, you need very high level of professionalism in the very lower echelons, in the very lower echelons. Because every room, every building is another terrain. And the commander there supposed to be a squad commander or platoon commander or company commander, young people with no much experience, and we need to train them to be prepared for this challenge. And I believe that this challenge encompasses all military organization in the Western world. The third issue is about building the force. Keep in mind that the challenge for Israel today is really huge and unique at the same time. Why? Because, in fact, we need three different militaries. The first one, to cope with any Palestinian revolt in Israel. It's not a pleasant business, but this is part of the military business. The second one is to fight our enemies along the border, the Hezbollah, other Shiite militias I mentioned, the Hamas. And the third one, well, 
this is new. It's fighting Iran. We cannot allow ourselves not to prepare for direct confrontation with Iran. But we are not the United States of America. We don't have expeditionary forces. There is no Marine Corps in Israel. Should we build one? No. It's way beyond our capabilities. So what should we have? Well, this is a big question. I'm going to write about it. This is the classified part of the paper. And the fourth pillar is about leadership, defensive leadership. What you can say here is the following. First, keep in mind that the role of the IDF in the Israeli society is much larger than the role of any other military in the Western world. In Israel, the IDF is a huge educational system. This, as, this is well, the military service, the mandatory military service, serve as a, the last opportunity of the Israeli state to educate her youngest. It's a very impressive process and a very tough process at the same time. But we should lead this process and not lagging behind all kinds of currencies in the Israeli society. And since we have some disputes in the Israeli society, these disputes go straight into the military. And coping with that, well, that's very delicate and very complicated. And the other main issue concerning leadership, I mentioned already. It's about creating enough level of professionalism in a very young guys. Very, very complicated. Very complicated here in the, in the United States. Much more complicated with our draft system. Keep in mind that every four months, the IDF take thousands of young people, well-trained young people, and send them home. And observe thousands of newcomers and train them from the very beginning. So it is complicated to keep the right level of professionalism inside Israel. So how to conclude this short discussion? The bad news is that I believe that we end an era, the most promising era of Israel. And you would say, how can you say something like that? You fight all the time. No, it's not like that. The wars of the last 30 to 40 years were quite simple. This is my, you know, own personal biography. And I have to admit it. You know, I'm very proud, for example, for my role in defensive uh, shield operation, 2002. I fought in every major Palestinian city except Jericho. Very proud. But at the same time, I have to admit, it was against very, very poor enemy. 
the enemy is the enemy is not so poor anymore. So this is the bad news. The good news is that while looking at the Middle East with all the changes and the turmoil and the unexpected issues, I would I would say that if you're looking at that, you know, from a wider angle, we should be quite optimistic. With all the faults, with all the problems, I believe that we are on a path of being stronger, more capable, more sophisticated, and more fitted for future challenges. Thank you. And now the Q&A session, in which General Golan speaks in greater detail about Iran, Israel's need for U.S. partnership, his own view of Kurdish independence, and other regional challenges. The conversation was moderated by Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff, whose voice is the first you'll hear now. Let me ask a few questions based on what you said and some of the things that you didn't say. Let me first ask you this. I assume that uh, somewhere in, uh, in Tehran, there's a, um, an equally um, uh, accomplished Iranian general who is writing a defense policy for um, his minister of defense, or perhaps for his, the head of the IRGC. Or... They spent the lunchtime at this, you know, pretty much the same. Right, and <laughs> I'm sure they're doing it on live, talking about it on live stream too. Um, what do you think he's saying to his superior in how they are shifting their defense policy from the last time a previous Iranian general looked at, uh, at this issue? It's a very good question, and I would say the following. What is really strange for us, thinking about Iran, is that they truly think imperially. You know, in our modern world, discussing, you know, all kind of uh, imperial ideas, well, you're supposed to be lunatic if you talk about it. No. I truly follow, you know, the Iranian mind for many years. They think globally. They think in very wide frame concerning time. And they had, up to now, along the history, three different empires. Why wouldn't they have the fourth one? You know, it's amazing. They established their terror net all over the globe. Why would Iran have terror cells in South America? Why would Iran try to kill the Saudi ambassador to the USA here in Washington? Why? Because that's the way they think. They think globally. They think in, from historical perspective. And therefore, they think they should have their own right place in modern world. And the right place for Iran is to become the most dominant power in the Middle East. And they see no problem with that. And look at that. They feel superior concerning any Arab. And from this position of superiority, they have no problem working with Sunnis, although they are Shiites. No problem. They do not hesitate concerning that, although they prefer to have Shiite proxies all over the Arab world. Is that a 
and so forth. Okay. Yep. So the, the, this leads me to the next question. You described three big options. Um, uh, victory, uh, deterrence. And attrition. And attrition. With an adversary that has imperial designs and an adversary that is um, uh, whose headquarters are so far away from yours, its capital, is victory decisive victory decisive victory an option? We cannot do it alone. We cannot. And therefore, I think that in our modern world, where threats spread all over the world very easily, through the net, through terror cells, through the flow of, you know, refugees all over the world. Well, in this current world, we should cooperate more strongly than ever before. And therefore, I consider future cooperation between Israel and the United States of America as much more important comparing to anything we have in the past. Now, that leads me to my next question. There's a big debate in the United States about strategic priorities. And there are many, I mean, one hears voices all the time saying that the main priority for the United States is terrorism, Sunni jihadism. Um, reading between the lines of your remarks, that's not quite the same prioritization that I interpret you making. Yeah, you're right. I think that all nations on earth thinks, think in terms of trauma. And when you have a strategic discussion with someone, you should ask yourself before the discussion starts what is shaping trauma. For, for instance, in Israel, is the Yom Kippur War. Um, I think that what happened here in the United States of America is that terror becomes some sort of a monster. And I can understand why. But I want to tell you something. When I look at the threat imposed by Daesh by ISIS by you know no matter what is the term comparing that to the threat imposed by the Iranians well nothing to compare we deal for years for decades with you know ISIS style terrorism I wouldn't say it's not a problem but we managed to live with that and when I commanded the Northern Command, and so mainly in, my, in the southern sector of the Golan Heights, uh, ISIS fighters, you know, walking along the border. So what? So they walk along the border with their Kalashnikov on the shoulder. So what? They are primitive, relatively, relatively limited capabilities, and yes, they have their own imagination, and they're all their own determination, and it's dangerous, I admit that. But 
I know how to cope with that. Look at the Iranian threat. Well, I know this is just the Israeli perspective. It's much more threatening comparing to the Daesh threat. Because the Iranians are sophisticated. Um, they are higher form of civilization. They have a nice academic infrastructure, nice industry, good scientists, many talented young people. They are very similar to us. And because they are similar to us, they are much, much more dangerous. And therefore, I think that we cannot cope with them alone. And look at the way they operate in the region, in a very clever way. They try all the time to invest as less as possible. And if they have to invest, they prefer investing money, not blood. And when it comes to blood, they want to invest as little as possible and use other proxies. And if it's absolutely necessary to work with them, all right. So we should support them by military leadership, not but by warriors. That's the way they work. And from their perspective, well, it's very clever and very sophisticated. Therefore, very dangerous. Um, one, one more question, then I'll turn it over to, to your questions. Um, perhaps it was an oversight, perhaps not. But I listened very carefully to your remarks, and one word I didn't hear was the word peace. In <laughs> what can you, you know, uh, how can you connect me to peace? <laughs> so I want to ask from a from an idea from a military perspective, where does that word or that concept fit in? All right, I I I would like to say something about it. No doubt that the best, well, the best security gained by peace. There is no other, you know, this is the, the most desirable outcome. But I think that we use the word, the term peace, too easily and too often. What is the meaning of peace? Do we have a peace with Egypt? Not exactly. First of all, it does not base on values. Secondly, the very limited relationship, mainly security relationship. So what is that exactly? We call it peace because we have no other term to define it. But in our modern world, and also as part of the coming doctrine and policy, we should define in a better way, more in details, what is a peace? A good peace is a peace based on values. Other form of peace based on interests, 
And in some cases, you don't have peace. You have hostility with no violence. This is also a kind of a reasonable situation. We, we are not lucky. We never ever experience a relationship with our neighbors like you have with Canada. And we wish to have something like that. You know, my... You haven't heard we're about to go to war with them, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they would like to be defeated, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, my great-grandmother, who was born in Israel in the late 19th century, she used to have, you know, weekend shopping in Beirut. Think about that. It's great. She used to take a horse cart from Rishon LeZion to Tel Aviv, from Tel Aviv, from Jaffa. From Jaffa. She took a train uh, north to Beirut, stayed there for three, four days, and returned back once a month. Great. But we don't have an experience like that in Israel anymore. This is a shame. But this is, that's reflect the fact that we don't have real peace with anyone around us. Okay. Thank you. All right. Now um, uh, uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to your questions. Please be kind enough to uh, uh, um, identify yourself, keep your question fairly brief, so we have time to get a bunch in. I'll start with Doug. Thank you. Uh, General Golan, that was an extremely interesting presentation. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that one idea that you might want to add to the mix um, would reflect the fact that if you look at the asymmetric strategies that have been used against Israel and the United States uh, in recent decades, they've sometimes succeeded without militarily defeating the armed forces of either the United States or Israel. And they succeed because they're basically deciding that they're one of the main battlefields in the war as they conceive it is the Congress or is the Knesset or is public opinion. And so I think that... Legitimacy. Uh, well, legitimacy, political support. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you kill a few Israelis long enough, they leave southern Lebanon, right? Or they leave Gaza. If you kill a few Americans long enough, the, you know, the, you begin to get people in Congress calling for a cutoff of money. I would simply suggest that when you're looking at your national security strategy, but also arguably your defense strategy... Something that deals with the special strategic communications, whatever you want to call it, uh, aspects of what needs to be done for the military to succeed in light of the political strategies that your enemies are, are using. You are uh, absolutely right, and it's there. When I discuss the issue of uh, prevention and influence, well, it's about, it's about that. This is part of it. You are right. 
Barbara Rome with Defense News and Strictly Security on I-24 News. And uh, now I'm anxious because, you know, she always asks me very tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have three quick questions. One, opportunity to clarify what you meant that in this modern era, decisive wars cannot, Israel cannot uh, win a decisive war alone, cooperation is imperative, and you cited the need for the U.S. cooperation. Are you some way negating Yitzhak Rabin's not one blood of American? Uh, so that's one thing, please, we need to clarify. Uh, second, you talked about how um, wars of the past 30 to 40 years were quite simple. We're in a new era, and who better than you knows the heavy price that Israel has paid for the two Lebanon wars? Is the reason you said that because you now automatically assume that any next conflict is going to be a three-front war with Iran right there in the mix? Is that why you distinguished future wars? And finally, Barbara, you get you get two. <laughs> just about uh, the. Gadi Eisenkot's uh, IDF strategy, how is your work here at the Institute meshing with, is that an addendum to or um, something above uh, the IDF strategy? There's a, a question from our next uh, lecture. Okay. All right. All right. Go ahead. Uh, the first one. Um, we live in a world where we cannot operate alone, not just because, you know, we have no expeditionary forces in Israel. Uh, it's always because in modern warfare you have uh, the cyber dimension. Can you be effective today concerning cyber dimension without some sort of good relationship with America? The answer is no. We need that. Um, this gentleman mentioned the issue of legitimacy and soft power. Can you fight today without using soft power? You need it whatsoever. Can Israel do it alone? No. We need the international community for that. Uh, you want to be effective concerning fighting terror today? It's all about international cooperation. And we enjoy today a level which is uncomparable concerning counter-terror operations all over the globe. Many of them are not our own initiative. British initiatives, Dutch initiatives, and things like that. Um, and why we can achieve decisive victory over the Hezbollah. And we don't need for that any American soldier. And where, while we can defeat any Shiite militias in Syria, and we don't need for that any American soldier, we cannot fight Iran alone. So all right, they could affect us, we could affect them. But it's all about attrition. All about. If you want to, to gain something which is deeper, we cannot do it alone. And this is fact of life. It's better to admit that. We need to know our limitations. Um, I also think it, it answers, in a way, the second question. 
and about the IDF strategy. No problem. I, I work very closely, you know, naturally with Gadi Eisenkot. And all I can, all I'm going to write is uh, in coherence with the IDF strategy. There is no problem there. And while writing that, we work together. So every few weeks we meet, we discuss, you know, the more delicate issues, and believe me, it's going to be okay. Uh, yes, on the right, Dana. Uh, thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall with Transnational Strategy Group. Thank you, uh, General Golan, for that really very comprehensive um, presentation. I had a question sort of like Rob, something that I did not hear you say. I have a feeling it may be because you can't say a lot. I don't want to put you on the spot. Your answer that you can't say anything is fine. But one area that really is important is you look at the new changing uh, regional relationships, not only the geoeconomic relationships, Israel's potential commercial and economic cooperation with GCC countries, but also some potential military connections. Is it possible that Israeli cooperation with some of the GCC states uh, on the military side could become a little bit like what's, be what's happened with Egypt. Is there anything you can say about that and how that may figure in to everything you talked about, including obviously Iran? Yeah. Well, I would say the following. In the last, well, almost two years, um, we have unparalleled military relationship with Jordan and Egypt. And I think it has its own appearance in the media. But I would say it's very limited to our mutual interests. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, a few months ago, I asked the Israeli ambassador to Amman uh, to come and speak in front of some, you know, IDF officers, prominent officers. And there was a huge gap at the way we describe our relationship with Jordan. From our perspective, great. From her perspective, Terrible. And this is the problem. When you have relationship based only on interest, and when you don't want, from your reasons, to change the very basic popular sentiment toward, toward Israel, by the end of the day, it won't change much. So I think that those who believe that by military cooperation we would change the nature of the Middle East, I don't believe that. You need something which is much more profound in order to leverage the relationship, the mutual relationship between Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. And I want to be understand, you know, understood, you know, in, in the right way. I support any form, any sort of mutual relationship with Jordan and Egypt. 
And what we have right now in hands is very, very precious, but it's not enough. Yes, in the back. Thank you very much for your time, Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan TV. As you know, we need to talk after that. Okay. <laughs> As you know, Kurdistan region of Iraq has decided to go to a referendum for independence. In your opinion, General, Kurdistan independent, how important is it for the stability of the region? And second question, what do you think about the agreements between Hezbollah, Assad regime, and ISIS? Thank you. Well, you know, I, if you don't mind, I'll try to juggle mm -hmm. with, you know, different issues. <clears throat> I very much like the idea of independent Kurdistan. Well, basically, I like the Kurd people. And you know, we have good cooperation with the Kurd people since the early 60s. And looking at the, mid the Middle East today, I would say that the only positive development concerning the destiny of the Middle East is the emerge of some sort of a Kurdish entity, independent entity. That's the way I look at that. It's a very personal approach. I do not reflect here any formal position of Israel. Um, I think the Kurds are uh, by nature um, moderate element with a positive influence on the surrounding people. And from my personal perspective, uh, the PKK is not a terror organization. Maybe it's will have you know some you know headlines, but uh, that's the way I look at that. Um, so yes, I I would like to see. Uh, I I I cannot portray the exact boundaries, and I cannot portray you know how you bring together if you bring together. Uh, Persian Kurds and Iranian Kurds and uh, you know Iraqi Kurds and then Syrian Kurds and Turkish Kurds and maybe it won't materialize in our own era. I don't know. But basically, looking at Iran in the east, looking at the instability at the region, a solid, stable, cohesive entity, Kurdish entity in the midst of this quagmire, it's not a bad idea. Well, there goes any chance at you winning the Erdogan Men of the Year Award. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, Alan, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Just, just very quickly about uh, the. Uh, what the, was the, the, the other question? The about the Hezbollah agreement on ISIS, um, uh, you know, bussing the ISIS uh, fighters to uh, the near the Iraqi border. Well, I, I think this is not exactly a strategic issue because I think everyone understands that ISIS is on a decline concerning is present pretentious to establish an Islamic State. And I believe that in, uh, in the future, the idea will remain with us. And terror activity will follow the future history. But we should uh, you know, live with it. I don't see any other significant you know, influence. Alan, on my left. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Alan Gerson, AG, International Law. Uh, General Golan, in painting the big picture, the strategic picture, uh, there's one big missing element that I think we're looking to you for an answer. I, I call it the, uh, the missing bear, the big bear. Uh, Robert Satloff began by talking about the role of Russia in instigating conflict, and we know it's about that. It's a huge the, bear. It's a huge bear, <laughs> but it hasn't been mentioned. So my question is this. This huge bear is on Israel's borders now in Syria. It has influence over Iran. The United States is at least uh, debating among itself whether... Don't take it personally. Go ahead. Yeah, its own uh, uh, influence in the region should, should diminish. Uh, the relations between Russia and Israel have steadily gone up. Can Russia be a uh, constraining influence on Iran's ambitions? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can you expound on that, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, our interests and the Russian interests are not compatible. But I cannot describe the Russian influence only as a negative one. In fact, we have good operational relationship with the Russians. And I had the opportunity to meet them twice, and it was a very constructive discussions. Uh, what we have in hand, well, that's quite effective. Uh, so, this is the Middle East. We need to learn how to live with, you know, different interests and here and there finding some common ground. It's possible. And working not against the, the Russians, but with the Russians. Uh, no, it's not easy. It's not easy. But I think that up to now, I can sum up it as a positive experience. It's not necessarily will remain like that, but hopefully that will be the future. Um, I don't think that the Russians are pro-Iranians uh, in their ideology. They use the Iranian influence for their behalf. Uh, but they have their own independent interest in the region and in cases, these interests want 
wouldn't be you know compatible with the Iranian interest, I think they 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 will react in the Russian way, in a very strict way. Uh, so it, it makes the situation more complicated, but it's not necessarily a negative uh, development by nature. Okay. Uh, Brian used to be right there. Um, Ted Pfeiffer. Hello, Ted Pfeiffer, uh, retired foreign service. Israel is, an, is a regional power. It's eminently logical to, for Israel to seek to uh, draw in U.S. support in the event of a conflict with another aspiring regional power. The United States is a power with global interests. Currently, its focus seems to be shifting to Asia, East Asia. North Korea, China, when it's not focused on Western, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, when it's not focused on the Baltics. Um, if I were thinking about the United States national security strategy and I was focusing on my priorities, um, it would not necessarily put Iran up there, especially if at least for the moment, there seems to be a certain stabilization of the strategic problem with Iran. Now, could you put that together and uh, come up with how would you convince uh, a U.S. leadership that, in fact, it should be putting Iran higher up on its uh, priority list rather than lower down? Let, let me tell you a story, a true story. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity uh, to meet uh, Sir Adrian General, Sir Adrian Bradshaw, the Deputy Secor, how you call it? Secure. Secure. Uh, and he told me, you know, and I start you to tell him my regular story about the Iranian threat. And after 10 minutes of uh, listening very politely, uh, in, interrupted and uh, told me the following. Why do you think that anyone in Europe interested in Iran? This is not the story. Iran is not the problem. It's the solution. It wants stability in the region, so Iran is the solution. We cannot think, you know, similarly uh, because, understandable of, because of uh, understandable reasons which I portray in length previously. Uh, so I had a lot of discussions with uh, my American counterparts and I have tried to explain over and over again why the way we look at the Iranian problem is completely different to what has been seen from the European angle. On that note, General, I'm going to have to apologize to the questioners I couldn't get to today. And I want to thank you for a, uh, shall we say, most provocative and fascinating presentation. 
And I want to thank everybody for joining me and joining the Schiff family for this very special event, our, um, uh, our memorial on the 10th anniversary of the passing of our friend Zev Schiff. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.